just off the road here after an incredible journey in the Pacific Northwest, uh, healing through uh, rhythm and love. Uh, to me, it's one of the best uh, recipes for uh, psychosomatic healing. And uh, But getting back in the driver's seat today, uh, continuing on with uh, speaking to my elders, uh, especially specifically my next guest, who uh, really uh, he started his career uh, in uh, the, the great city of Detroit and migrated out to um, the Bay Area, where he wound up in a, this uh, indefatigable band that actually didn't really see the light of day uh, for some time, even though they were active in the early 70s and discovered by David Crosby. This band was called R.J. Fox, and I haven't had a chance to do two epic interviews with the legendary drummer Carl Tassi, and um, been kind of poking around to try to see who else was within that milieu of that magical, magical time in our country's history when magic and music was uh, oftentimes produced in the studio. There were no baffles. Everybody was hitting together. The mic placement was just perfect, and uh, yeah. Joel Siegel, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hey, Jake. Glad to be with you. So grateful to have you have invite me on your show as a guest. And I've been checking out some of your episodes and you do some really great work. You, you know, unlike a lot of interviewers who well, don't know what they're doing and then ask some really dumb things, you seem to really get to some nice places with your guests. So I'm grateful to have the chance to chat. Oh, man, it's such an honor, man. Me too. I um I wanted you to talk about in your life um, being uh, somebody that um, has also been involved in psychotherapy as a, a psychologist. I went right. to psycho psychotherapy uh, since I was about seven or eight years old and uh, even through my first marriage. And only in the last five years have I, well, I stopped going, not because it was dissatisfying or anything, but I kind of felt like I had out talked myself. And I, I have to be honest with you now. I mean, I know you don't, you haven't seen me in person, but when I go to concerts now, especially with my peers, people that I've interviewed that I know dearly could be my age or older, um, I am having like uh, what they call descarga, which is like a spiritual uh, breaking open of the of the of the of the skull, so to speak. And it's yeah. it's a spiritual discharge. And uh, Doctor Siegel, it's healing. It is beyond healing, and I'm getting so much stuff out of my system. And I wanted you to talk about the the qualities of rhythm as it relates to psychosomatic healing. Okay, well, that's a damn good question. I mean, I, I think what I can say about that, you know, first of all, I was a psychologist for 20 years. So, you know, I, I have done just about everything I could do as a psychologist during that time. I no longer am. Um but of course, I'm still a rock and roll musician, um, <laughs> but, and I'm doing that very actively. And I hope we'll talk about that. But to get back to your absolutely. question, absolutely, yeah. No, this is more about like what I've discovered about myself is that I it it is the most it's only it's like the only healing thing. It's nonverbal healing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think what, listening to you, Jake, what I can say is that probably what happened was there was probably an accumulation of insight that was going on when you were in therapy, whatever that was, and probably an accumulation of stuff that you, you stopped because you ran out of stuff to say, which sounds like a line from a Woody Allen movie. And it's true. I mean, it's hysterical, but, but, but true, but probably even though you quote ran out of things to say, you would accumulated a vast reservoir of insight about yourself. And probably what happened is music is the door, you know, music is a door because it's an essentially emotional experience. 
I mean, when you go to a show, like you're saying, or a concert, or you hear something that really moves you, it opens you up emotionally. And I think what's probably happening for you, just taking a stab at it would be, you know, you're probably able to access now and utilize some of that growth and some of that stuff you experienced in therapy. And the way you're doing it is because you're allowing music to open you up, which is what all the best writers and listeners do. Hmm. From your own personal experience, even though, you you know, it was obviously the heyday, you know, when you were first on the bandstand in Detroit, but do you feel like um, you guys, on top of why people get into music to begin with, whatever their intentions are, part of it is, for you, was group therapy? I, I didn't ever feel like anything I did with my band with RJ Fox or my other bands, Oasis, or my current band, the Pocket Band, were no anything like group therapy. Although I do have to say, mm. and this is an important thing, RJ Fox, which was made up of Richard Hubby, Sherry Fox, and myself, and some other people, um, you know, we had an emotional bond which transcended what musicians or artists normally have, and it became something that was both it was very life affirming in that way. So while it wasn't group therapy, there was, I mean, like when we, we were apart for a long time, RJ Fox, I'll just say this story real briefly. We came back together in 07. We, we hadn't, I'd been making albums and doing other stuff, you know, with my band, the pocket band, but hadn't really. And I did an album with Sherry called Starcross and some other stuff, but, but RJ Fox as a band hadn't been together since uh, for quite a while. And when we came back together in Katati at Prairie Sun studio, um, to make that album, which eventually became called Reunited. Um, it was a profoundly emotional experience, one that was kind of earth shattering for all of us because of the road we traveled and what had happened. So that's kind of when I think about that. Um, well, let's get down to brass tacks here. I mean, I'm not sure if you, um, I mean, I've done 2000 interviews. One of them was with the legendary late great Gordon Lightfoot. And he oh, yeah. He used to play at a coffee house and it's in my third book and I can't remember the name of it, but he saw Oscar Peterson there. This is in Detroit. And I'm wondering about the venues that you guys were playing at in Detroit. You know, you had, I'm sure you, I'm sure you've seen that film searching for sugar man. And you know, you you had Rodriguez playing at the sewer. I've interviewed Dennis coffee. That's where him and Mike Theodore discovered him. But where was this original trio that Siegel was cooking with, with Sherry. Where were you guys playing? Well, uh, actually, I was in an earlier band where we used to open at Mount Holly, which was a ski resort for Bob Seeger. So that oh, was this my... Is so classic. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, this, yeah. Is, this is like, you know, and what was funny about the Bob Seeger opening was uh, that band, which preceded R.J. Fox, um, Mount, Mount Holly was like a local ski resort, not really not much of a mountain but people went there because it was all all they could get their hands on and the inside where bob Seeger played was really quite nice we actually played outside you know oh it was my like fucking like fucking fridge and i would put my hands on my guitar and they would like i mean you know we're talking about you know like i could not believe this dude I, you yeah, were playing Michigan, outside in the freezing yeah, michigan winter yeah in the, in the in the winter and absolutely that was the deal so <laughs> so that's a funny story about bob Seeger and mount holly R.J. Fox, when R.J. Fox got together as a band, I mean, it was kind of a funny story because what happened was Richard and Sherry were already playing together at a club called The Backseat. This was a raucous, you know, bar music joint um, out in the sticks outside of Detroit. And, um, you know, it was a tough environment. So when I joined them and we made R.J. Fox, 
that's where we went to play because they already had kind of like a pre-existing gig. And when, when the owner heard us, he started, he said, we just, we'll book you for, I don't know, five or six nights a week, you know? So like what happened was we started playing there every night. And uh, the problem was we were doing this, as you probably know, this really advanced, incredible, original, you know, what David Wood Crosby would call the best band you never heard music, you know, and mm. really far ahead of where anyone else was, even on the coast, let alone in Michigan. But the band, but the bar we were in was like a raucous shoot 'em up, kind of like throw shit at you, you know what I mean? So it was kind of an interesting experience because we were, you know, they wanted to hear Down by the River, Neil Young's song, and we wanted to play Parallel Trains, my song. So it was one of those experiences where we, you know, we did that for a long time. I think we were a bar band there for close to a year until we left Michigan. I mean, do you feel like you were able to, um, you know, you weren't, had you had thoughts at all about, um, I guess maybe more the, 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 the macro question is like so many bands, so many cats today. And part of it's just, there's not a whole lot of live places to play. There's not a huge domestic touring circuit outside of branded, well-known bands. Right. Did you, what, what was your philosophy as it related to like allowing original tunes to take the, on their own life form on the bandstand before you would record them? A lot of people that they go into the studio, they make album after album after album, and the album's just atrophy because there's no touring circuit. So they capture these songs and then they atrophy, as opposed to like, you know, Pat Metheny was on the road with. Mark Egan and Danny Gottlieb for 180 days one one time, and, and they had a bunch of original tunes they were working at. And by the time they got back to record them, a couple of the tunes were seismically different than what they had originally were kind of birthed as. And I wonder, right. just in general, what was your philosophy about, because it was really more, I mean, I don't think, well, I know for a fact that in talking to a lot of engineers, there was no template for how to record an album until about 1976. Before that, it was kind of like, let's just do what feels right. But I'm curious about your philosophy as it relates to allowing original tunes to take on a life of their own on the bandstand. Well, what I can say about that, Jake, Jake you really have a very perceptive way of asking questions. I'm really grateful to do the interview. So to answer Thank that question, I mean, I think, what happened was we we were all about our original music. That was what we were at our very essence. We didn't want to do anything but our original tunes because we knew they were so good and mm -hmm. they were so unusual. So what happened was we would put them, we, we would do them live at the club as much as we could, as long as we weren't getting too many tomatoes thrown at us. And I'm not, <laughs> I'm not kidding about that. Wow. Popcorn and shit, you know what I mean? And people, you know, uh, kind of razzing us because we weren't doing, you know, what they expected to do. You know, we would do as much original music as we could. And it kind of developed, it did develop a little bit of a life of its own in the sense that um, we felt like we had, were able to explore it a little bit in the live arena before we ever got to the studio in California. By the time we got to the studio and we're surrounded by, remember when we recorded our first album, just to set the stage, the Wally Hyders in San Francisco, 1970, David Crosby was in one studio, Jefferson Airplane was in the other studio, Grateful Dead was in the third studio and we were in the fourth. Now just think about the musical energy in that building. Well, I just want to be clear. <clears throat> I interviewed, I've done several interviews with 
Stephen Barncard, and and the first time he mentioned, he goes to me. This is back 2015. He said, "R.J. Fox is a band we need to talk about." Now we kind of went our separate ways um, and never followed up. So this whole cyclical right. event here, I just want to be clear that the 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 place where Gordon used to see Oscar Peterson was called the Chessmate. Right. <laughs> All right. So like, I mean, you 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 would say that. I just want to be clear. You were not playing top 40 hits what made your music specifically so unique i mean seeger was a rocker amboy dukes were out there um you know obviously motown was cooking but in your how would you describe that before you got because i mean i happened to just fall upon this blog today and it was great i read up on it where crosby when you got to wally hiders he thought barncard was was he was that you guys were his talent Barncard thought Crosby and and I'm like the milieu of that plus David's girlfriend just died in a car accident. The whole thing is my favorite right. album ever. Anyway, uh, tell me a little bit about the what made it unique and uh, on a good night when you wouldn't have tomatoes thrown at you. Yeah, I mean we we were just like I said we were driven to play our own music because we knew that what we had was so unique. I mean you know um, in terms of our vocal harmonies. I mean we we. We just had our own vocal style and our own instrumental style. Remember, we had big, big acoustic guitars at that time, and we kind of had a jazz format with a lot of musical harmony thrown in. So we created something. Our musical changes were unique, and that's why, you know, when we played live at the audition, you know, Barncard, of course, was our producer, and we love him. But um, when we played at the audition, uh, you know, the people were, uh, these people were Crosby and the members of the airplane and dead, whatever, you know, they were all blown away. I mean, really? They, that is they, so you know, freaking amazing, dude. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> I mean, actually, for, for, yeah. actually what ahead. happened was at the audition, yeah. to tell the story, you know, you know we, we auditioned for David Geffen in Los Angeles. We flew out to Los Angeles. We auditioned for David Geffen, and it didn't go well. Because hmm. David Geffen, who, you know, had produced some very famous stuff and what I was, he'd go on to become a mega millionaire. Um, didn't, did, he was having a bad day or he didn't want to hear us or whatever. We were just, you know, four kids from the Midwest. I'm not sure exactly what went wrong. Um, Richard, uh, I forget the guy who was married to Jane Fonda for a while, was there with him. And they were like more interested in talking about other things really than listening. And we were we were pretty, we'd spent all the money we had in the world to get out there to Los Angeles. So we were, we were really upset. And that's what happened. We flew up to San Francisco. You know, and I, I kind of talked my way into the main door at Hyder's and kind of just bullshitted the guys until Crosby finally came out and he was pissed. What the fuck are you doing here? You know, what do you want? You know what I mean? Why are you bothering me? We're in the middle of making a fucking record. I said, well, <laughs> you know, I said, here's what happened yesterday with Geffen. And he said, well, you never should have seen Geffen. He's a fucking jerk. You know, what are you doing? And I said, well, we need someone to hear us. He said, OK. After he, you know, Crosby would always joke around. He said, here's what I'll do. You, you get your little band, you come to come here tomorrow night or whatever, you know, whatever time. And I'll have some of my musical friends here. We'll all listen to you. And if you're great, we're going to help you. And if you're not, we're going to throw your ass out. <laughs> well, I want to be clear about something uh, because my favorite, I mean, I love CSNY, CSN. My yeah. favorite record is if I could only remember my name, which yeah. was on Atlantic and you open up the gatefold cover and there's pictures of Greg Rowley and Garcia and Phil Lesh. And there's yeah. a picture of David Geffen. So you're telling right. Geffen was was so he was involved with with that project. But you're telling me that he was just a he was just a crab apple, didn't give you the time of day, but he wasn't like 
what made you go to what made you go to San Francisco? Well, I mean, we loved Crosby's music and we loved him and we felt if we couldn't, I mean, Dick Geffen was already a mini mogul. So we felt if we couldn't get a mini mogul to really give us a fair hearing, I mean, only because, again, he didn't say you got stink or you're bad or anything. He was very polite, David Geffen was, you know, he just he just was busy and right. he just seemed distracted and he really didn't seem that interested in us. You know what I mean? We kept saying, look, we write like Laura Nero, fuck face, you know, listen to us. But he just was busy. So I'm not blaming <laughs> David Geffen. You know, he was just worried. Absolutely not. No, no. But was he already working with Cross? I mean, I'm trying to figure uh, out if you, if you had already... If you yeah, actually, artist, actually yeah. Crosby was managed by Elliot Roberts. So that That's was right. kind of a little bit of a different group um, than Geffen, who would later, again, become sort of king of the world of, of, of you know, owning labels. But but in any event, so, you know, as I said, we, we were just exasperated to the point we were just kids and we were really exasperated. And that's what made me we flew up there. And, and uh, I, I went alone to the studio when I met with Crosby. And wow. I mean, when I was actually finally able to meet with him and um and like I said, he was, he, you know, he's such a wonderful man and so funny and so cut and dried. And he just told us to do that. So we showed up the next night and he was there with a number of his friends, um, one of whom was producer Stephen Barncard and uh, a number of the other players I've mentioned from the other bands. And they got in a circle and we got in the middle in the big studio A and we just played and we played like five songs and that was it. He just said, you know, we got to get out on the phone and sign these guys. The best thing I've ever heard. I'm sorry. He said, "Who, who, who do you say we had to get who on the phone?" Ahmed Erdogan, the president. Ahmed Erdogan. So I, you know, yeah. so I want to be. So you, you spent every dime you had to get to LA. Again, for the audience record, it was probably about twenty five or thirty bucks to fly up to San Francisco in that range. Right. So you right. got a little bit of dough left over. You wind up going down to Wally Hyder's on a trip to find Crosby. Right. He says, "Come back the next day. I'll bring Garcia. I'll bring my buddies." You right. get in a circle, which was very beautiful. Russ Gary, who is the a legendary uh, engineer up there, Cal Jader, he'd put everybody in a in a circle, drop a mic, and just burn. So you guys didn't record that night. You just played your originals and all, right. and and really, and and next thing you know, Erdogan is getting a phone call about R.J. Fox. Well, it was an it was an audition. Uh, Barncard did record it, of course. Yeah. You know, again, remember that David was just finishing. If I could only remember my name. That album and Stephen Barncard was the engineer. Absolutely. I, I must say, engineer par excellence on that album. Unreal. So, um, so he did record those demos, though they were just demos. Crosby got on the phone with Amit, and um, uh, that was that was what happened. The next thing we knew, you know, we were uh, we were making a record. Okay, so <clears throat> having a ball here with uh, Dr. Joel Siegel, and uh, I wanted to ask you about. So immediately at that, and, and just for my own point of view, I mean, I'm seeing bands and they're making records on independent labels and <clears throat> there's really no budgets and they're on the road. And the only way they make money is through the mer merchandise table. That's kind yeah. of, so when, once Erdogan said, yeah, okay, let's make a record. Did you guys, can you talk about the resources you were given? Was it just, here's, we're going to pay for a studio or you're going to have a budget. I mean, what had that work? Cause you were basically broke. No, Atlantic Records, you know, funded the, it was, it was the classic old school record. They funded a month in the studio. So explain, so for younger cats like myself, a month, right. you got a full month. I don't know like, if it was a full month, but I mean, with several weeks of studio time, the studio time, meaning a full day, each day, a blockout day, 
you know, and we were in there and the other bands were in there that I've mentioned and we were all, you know, commingling our artistic genes and Crosby was just finishing up, if I can only remember my name. And, you know, Steve, what happened was David Crosby gave us Stephen Barncard as a present. I mean, I remember that we both talked, Stephen and I have talked about this many times and David and I talked about it as well too. He said, you know, I mean, kind of as a present to Stephen for doing such an outstanding job on his solo record. And by the way, Stephen would record Crosby and Nash and, and you know, a bunch of other really famous people over oh the God. years. Yeah. But, um, but, but kind of, so David kind of gave Stephen RJ Fox as a present. And therefore we not only had a label and a deal and a studio, but we had a producer, Stephen Barncart. Actually, you bring up a great point because what I've realized in my journeys is that the engineer producer is equally as important in the relationship as it is to the actual band members themselves. Yeah. You had a quartet at that time, and what was the instrumentation? Well, no, actually, the instrumentation was a little more. Let me just be clear no, about no, this. No, before, I mean, before, the, before the recording, when you went to meet with Geffen, it was the four. You said the four of you. So who? Yeah, who that those? was Cher Sherry Fox, our singer, Richard Hovey, uh, guitarist, myself, and John Garlock, who was our lead guitar player at that time, and remained the lead guitar player on the first album. He's playing lead, so it was the four of us who were originally in that audition for Geffen, but there were five of us in the band. I know this is kind of arcane. Let me just go back, but it's important. I want to because... make sure this is very clear because I, because I would assume that if you were playing Geffen, your records, you had some kind of rhythm section, maybe. No, maybe... no, no. Oh, okay, we, go ahead. When we played, played for Geffen, it was just, it was a strictly acoustic, no rhythm section at all. But we came, when we, when we, when we came to California, we left one member of the band behind. And that was Marty Lewis, our bass player, one of the world's greatest bass players. And also that became Lewis. right the producer who produced, you know, uh, so many hits over the years. I mean, produced um, just so many cats. He, he became an incredibly, incredibly successful, wealthy producer and kind of a recluse, lived up in the Northwest. Um, it was very interesting, Marty's story. But anyhow, Marty didn't make the trip initially because yeah. he was always kind of like didn't want to be in a band. Once, once we, um, once we signed with Atlantic, of course they flew Marty out. So now we had, <laughs> so now we had our whole band except the rhythm section. So it was a question. He played. Well, he, played uh, he played. He was playing uh, bass fiddle for you guys or Fender bass. Bass, okay. electric bass guitar. Electric bass. Okay, got right. it. Got it. Like, okay. Like early Jaco Pastorius, you know what I mean? Totally, totally, totally. Like, I mean, really incredible. He was unbelievable. Everybody who heard him just dropped their trousers, you know. So, um, so then we needed a rhythm section, and thanks to Stephen Barncart and Crosby, we got uh, Spencer Dryden from the Jefferson Airplane and Bill Kreutzmann from the Grateful Dead to be our drummers together on our record. This is the great one of the greatest stories I've done. 2000 interviews it's to me this is it's been documented but to hear it from your mouth it's one of the billy kreutzman i've yet to get to him on this journey is the mo, has been the biggest healing rhythmic force in my life and at the yeah, time he, that crosby album david gifted you uh barncard and then barncard gifted you uh kreutzman uh because i and spencer in his own right is was the baddest vaudeville drummer going way back. He played brothels in L.A. This is before Jefferson Stars Airplane. With Yorma told me that. But it's like, I'm telling you, you Christmas came early. I, that wasn't during Christmas time, but that was just yeah. like 
You got to well, be kidding uh, me, man. Let me let me just mention a couple things about that. I mean, Stephen, of course, Barncarp was very helpful in getting both drummers, but also uh, I need to tip my hat again to David to Crosby for that because I don't think either of those drummers, as successful as they were, would have played. I mean, you know, you got to understand when Crosby would he would tell everybody this, this is the best band you've never heard. You got, I mean, you know, Kreutzmann would not play and, and Dryden would not play just with anybody. Absolutely I mean, not. You know, of course. Of so course. Crosby really sold us. And then when what happened was, this is a very interesting bit of rock history. There weren't any bands at the time using two drummers. We've gone back and looked at it. I think there were one or two bands, but never two drummers like that. And they'd never played together and certainly never played on an album together. So for them to join forces and what was great about that musically was Billy was a time drummer. I mean, he's the greatest timekeeper in the world. Spencer was a Tom man. He was a man who could roll and rhythmically, and that's what our music did. So we put these two guys, we got pictures and video. I put these guys in the studio together, and, well, it was magic, you know. It's so interesting because a lot of a lot of music heads, a lot of serious musicians and music heads really have a hard time with Billy's drumming because of the dead itself. Phil Lesh was, not, was a lead bass player. He wasn't a pocket player like possibly Lewis was. You know, yeah. and so Billy was constantly the tempos were shifting constantly and sometimes the time would get a little bit a little bit wonky. But at that time in his career, uh, in the early 70s, there was no more beautiful, tasteful drummer than Billy Kreutzmann. And I think it's such a beautiful thing. And I want to be very clear. I want you to talk about this because it sounds to me. Was that the first time live or in studio that. Joel Siegel had actually played with a trap drum set. No, no. I mean, the band I was in, the, the band that played that opened for Mount Bob Holly. Seger. Mount Holly. Yeah, Holly. We, we, we had a drummer, Mickey Pakulin, and Mickey was a, a great drummer. And he, That's crazy. So I, he was I, outside I, with the mittens on. He had mittens yeah, on. I was, yeah. Right. Well, let me just make a comment about Bill Kreutzmann, yeah. something that is very interesting. So one of the things about our music was it didn't lend itself to a lot of heavy rock drumming beat. Now, my later stuff that I do now with the pocket band, I mean, I've got a pretty heavy groove going. But at that time, we were more jazz oriented. And the thing about Bill that you're talking about that you were referencing with other players or whatever, that's what worked so well for us. Billy knew how to skip. He kind of could skip through the song with us. And it was a fantastic experience. I mean, he, he would he had a big smile. He knew that he was doing something unusual and it was really working and i think for him again without speaking on behalf of anyone um i think it was a big change from the dead because they didn't do anything like what we did you know i'm still trying to get my when you say there was jazz aesthetics within the within yeah. the vocals uh it yeah. wasn't it wasn't it wasn't going to be like a deep purple or like you know that john bonner right. that hard rock thing right it the, had the, more the, the jazz aesthetic was came from the acoustic guitars because what we did was we all played in tunings like Joni Mitchell. You know, we yeah, all yeah. used those tunings. So what happened was we had, as Stephen Barncart called it, an acoustic guitar salad with a lot of jazz overtones. We used a lot of harmonics because we were all in tunings that had either a D or an E root. But there was this incredible sound going on that no one had heard anything like that at that time. And that's a lot of what our first album was about. And so kudos to Bill and to Spencer, because they were both coming out of their comfort zone into this other, you know, world. And they just, they, they killed it. They did so great. In fairness, uh, uh, Billy and uh, Spencer must have had such a ball that they wound up doing Power Glide with 
the new riders several years, couple right. years later with right. that same kind of thing. Uh, and Mickey Hart had been kicked out of the dead at that point. So <clears throat> Billy was just a solo drummer, but I, you know, so I, I this is really important because um, you had a month and that sounds like a long time, but it probably really isn't. But at the same time, can you talk about the setup? Cause Barncard and I went nuts on the, if I could only remember my name and the war album that was caught up there, how he might, the room specifically the drummers and i'm curious about when you when the red light went on can you talk about what was going on in studio d or wherever you were cutting in terms of no was there any separation at all between the musicians and what kind of mics were placed i mean today they'll mic the whole damn drum set and and you get no leakage part of the the the, the and i haven't listened to the rj fox dem, uh, tapes enough but part of the magic of that crosby album is that it, there's a lot of good leakage and 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 right. that was and that was because of the air and the breath within the, in the studio go back in time talk to me when you when the red light went on when you decided like it's time let's hit what was that what how was this the uh the studio uh mic and how was it set up well the way we did it was i have an, i have an image of this i, I can send to you after the show you'll love Beautiful. it it's an, it's an image of bill and spencer playing together in oh the my, studio you're, you're making on, my day dude. this is unbelievable. on the on the rj fox album so what we did was because all of the uh primary instruments were, were acoustic even this is all on barn card i mean at this time barn card was and still is an absolute number one dude. Genius. yeah so he said you know we can't do this together we can't even do it in ISO rooms because it, it's just not going to work. So what we're going to do is we're going to record the band the way you're normally recording it with your acoustics, and then we'll put the drums on together, you know, overdub. So um, remember this 1970. So that was still a pretty rigorous exercise. Uh, Stephen believed in um, it was very interesting for acoustic guitars. I mean, no one let me let me try to say this. No one understood how to mic a good acoustic guitar better than steve barncart ever and if you listen to <laughs> if i can only remember my name oh my god and you listen to rj fox you'll know that no one you listen to laura allen i mean no one knew how to mic acoustic guitars better than barncart he was an absolute genius and he used you know a variety of different mics but one of his techniques would be to you know mic the acoustic in a couple of different ways remember this is back when you had to really mic stuff you couldn't just fake it so he'd have one mic very close up right by the sound hole and then another mic to pick up more of the ambience of the overall instrument. And he did that for every instrument. And sometimes we played in ISO booths, but sometimes we played live in the room together to get, you know, the flavor of it. So it was cool. With Spencer and Bill, they played with baffles between them, but that was it in the same room. Just a small no. baffles between them. They weren't in booths at all or anything like no, that. No, you'll see in the picture. And so the question is, what the fuck? How did Barncard get any separation? Remember, we were only I mean, we were only recording to a 16-track machine at that time. So, like, what was going on? Because when you hear the the record, you hear tremendous separation. And I think part of that was the way Stephen Mike the drums as well. So, you know, he deserves a tremendous amount of credit. I want to be I mean, there. I, I want to just make sure of my own my own little brain. Um that you guys laid down the acoustic and vocals first and then the drummers. You guys didn't hit at the same time, though. Well, we did on a couple of songs do it at the same time. So Can you talk about the, the magic of hitting live with those two drummers? To me, that is the, that's it, that's rock and roll history because, you know what, that is such a – I mean, I've interviewed all this 
the original Wrecking Crew cats, Hal Blaine and Don Randy. Today, yeah, you, yeah. you know, they go in, they plug in their keyboard, they play their part. They say, okay, you're done. Here's your money. Go home. It's so anonymous. It's so – and back right. then, it's like you guys were cooking. To me, that is next-level music, and yet right. we're so far from that. We are. You're right. So I've actually got video. Barncard recorded videos of Dude, this is on, you're losing I'm studio, losing my mind. And I will yeah. I will wait, wait till you hear this. He <laughs> obviously had very primitive equipment, but we're going to subject those videos, all seven songs, to the same process he used for Get Back for the Beatles. So oh, they God. will be crystal clear in black and white. And one song has Spencer playing live. And, and, and it's so live that you can hear there's a false start. We start rocking the song. I'm playing electric guitar. You know, there are people in the booth and Spencer stops because he knows he, he came in at the wrong time. So, I mean, it's all very live and very analog and very black and white. And, it, it, you know, it was really an experience. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know if, you, if you had, I'm also, this is also one of those things. Again, you weren't, this wasn't like. Uh, you guys weren't entrenched in the studio scene in Los Angeles. Those guys, basically, even in Motown, Dennis Coffey said, you know, you had to make, make one song every three hours. You couldn't putz around. You couldn't perseverate for hours on end. Here you have a month. Um, when you listen back to the those those ta those those uh, tunes, were they all first and second takes? I just find that if you go too far. By the 69th take, I mean, it's, you're just wanking it at that point. What, but you, yet you had you had all the studio time in the world. So how did you balance between not sucking all the soul out of the tune, but yet doing it when it was fresh? That is a really good question. You, you know your music because only someone with a real solid grounding of what it's like to record would say that. Here's how it went down. It was really actually fairly straightforward. We were so, we got to remember, this is an important part. Only a musician or maybe some of the, our fans will get this, but we'd never been able to hear our music recorded properly. So when 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 the, when the mic dropped and Barncar turned on the 16 track and we started cutting, we were ready. I mean, it was like the door to a new world opened up because it sounded <laughs> so fucking incredible. We Unreal. probably spent three or four days just rolling around on the floor going, it can't sound as good. I, I cannot. Mean, you you know, were like pigs in mud, man. Right, exactly. So, oh, um, so you know, in that context, what happened was, to answer the other part of your question, um, we didn't have to beat the tracks to death because one thing about RJ Fox was we were the best prepared band I ever worked in. I mean, we rehearsed so hard, so far. So we kind of like, we were so ready. That's why when we auditioned for Crosby and the other guys, we blew them away. They were like, oh my God, you guys are so fucking tight. What's up? You know, so we were ready with our album. And, you know, a lot of the material is first take, second take. This we, is remarkable. I mean, could, because you had, so for about four days, you were just in this, 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 this idyllic, yeah. land of sunshine sonic sunshine so to speak yeah and, and then, then also yeah. you have to understand that even after we were able to to conquer and begin to hear the music and hear our tracks and put bill on and spencer on the vocals were i mean you know we were a vocal band we were a vocal band sure. i think i think the all music guide said you know we have that our harmonies were a match if not exceeded csny so, I mean, you know, we were a really incredible vocal harmony band. You got to understand, we'd been singing together since 
I mean, we knew about each other since we were kids and we all kind of like, we just had the same genetics vocally. So when it came to singing together, we had a blend that was like, you know, like any of the best groups, you know, mamas and papas, uh, anybody at that time. So that really became an experience for us in the studio when we were able to actually get properly mic'd, sing properly, and also listen to Sherry, who really is one of the great voices of her generation. Her story is kind of a tragedy in some ways, but she was. Did you know that Sherry Fox is the only white girl to sing backup for Aretha Franklin? I mean, well, I mean, you're, you've, I'm, I'm sort of, my mouth is a gape right now. I, I mean, some right. of this inside information is just, it's just, it, it's so cathartic for me. She's saying want... background. She's saying background for Aretha for several years after. I mean, that's how good Sherry was singing backup for Aretha. I mean, you know, what well, what's, you I, I mean, you guys, what the, the, I don't want to get too deep into it, but I, you know, you guys reconvened about 15 years ago. What was so tragic about her situation? Oh boy, what can I say? I have to be careful here. Okay, um, then we'll just move on. I don't really want to go there. Yeah, I, you know what? Yeah. I, 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 but the point is, so split the difference with me. <laughs> you are, would you guys say you were perfectionists and you were rehearsing because you were perfectionists? Because I think there's a fine line between getting so tight that it becomes a formula trip versus getting a take that is just hot. I mean, the amount of guys that, and I'm not saying that, that it's great to have clams on records, but I mean, David Spinoza overbending a note on right place, wrong time. That was a reef Mardine. Right. He's like, let me do it again. They're like, no, it's perfect. Go. So, I mean, to me, like here you are talking about, you were so, so, uh, you would, you were so tight because you had played so much live stuff that you blew them away in the, in the audition. But then in the studio, how did you, was it the same kind of vibe or did you have, did, did you guys have to sort of push yourselves out of your comfort zone to say, okay, that first take, I don't necessarily love it, but barn card does. So let's, we got to just kind of surrender to that. Well, that's really a good question. And really we were, we were an unusual group of kids. Oh, we, I can imagine. We, I can only imagine. We, we just worked a lot harder than most of that. We worked a lot harder back in Michigan. I mean, we worked so hard to get to the place. We felt like we would never have a shot unless we were so tight because our music was so original and unusual. So we just worked very hard. And we finally, finally got to the studio, got to hiders with Barn Card recording us. We just knocked it out. I mean, it, it was like butter, you know, just sure. like it just kept coming out of us. And then we, we, of course, elaborated, we built other things, we built additional musical structures, we built additional vocals. When we finally heard Bill and Spencer on the tracks, and Marty just took off, I mean, Marty Lewis, he just started flying and doing some bass stuff. So yeah, I mean, we built the album as it went along, but, but um, it was more an exercise in joy than an exercise in, in, in you know, in difficult. It wasn't tedious, it wasn't tedious at all. It's beautiful. It, it was just, yeah, it was just like being in heaven. Um, well, I, this is another part of the story that, um, is absolutely fascinating to me. Again, I stumbled upon this blog. I think it was on all music, which is kind of hit or miss, but right. this was one of the best write-ups I've ever read. And, uh, my favorite period of the Grateful Dead is when they were really falling apart in the early eighties, hmm. losing money, band was at its wits end, not great management. And they brought in what they called an, a longtime friend they hadn't seen in a while, John McIntyre. Now, mm-hmm. Ma- McIntyre raised the vibe. He was very witty, very smart guy, and uh, actually got them 
uh, it was during kind of an intervention for Jerry. Anyway, he was in that view, in that lens, seen as a positive light. Uh, but he was on the scene back then and apparently started meddling with you guys and trying to convince you to um, that he could get you a better deal. And that actually sucked because it blew up the whole Atlanta contract. So please tell the story of, I mean, to me, it's like everything was just churning, like just butter. And did you guys get a little bit too big eyed or did, did, did you feel like people just sort of like, cause to me, you're already on the glide path with an established record label at a time when the music industry was only records and radio. Right. Right. right? Yeah. Take, no, take, what, take us through that. Yeah, I, I will take you through it. It's actually, it's, it's a, it's a very direct story. It's unfortunate. I mean, what happened was we, you know, we were doing the album and all that. And, and there was discussion with Crosby and Stephen and Barncard and myself about who was going to manage us. Elliot Roberts name came up because he was Crosby's manager and I was interested in him. And, and but, but at that time we were starting to do live gigs with the dead. We really? were playing with them and yeah, we opened for them at Winterland and, and, and like that. So oh, yeah. wow. because we opened for them, that's a whole story in itself the night that Owsley spiked the punch and we opened uh, for the dead at uh, Winterland. Uh, yeah. But um, but anyhow, at the, at the time that was happening, um, somebody, I'm not quite exactly sure, said, you know, why don't you just let McIntyre do it, John McIntyre, because he's managing the dead. He was managing the dead at that point. Sure. He was managing the dead. So, and he was a very Amazing. charismatic guy, you know, blonde hair, sort of knew a lot about what was going on. So we said, sure, you know, you can finalize our deal or whatever we, we need to do. The record was almost done. In fact, the record was, I think, done. And um, so I don't know. I, I guess it, this part of it is a little hazy in my memory, but I remember the basics, low notes of it. McIntyre and I flew to New York to uh, uh, talk about the marketing or the, you know, the release and all that. And, um, he went into Amit and just, you know, um, really, really blew blew the deal out of the water by being just a complete. I mean, what Amit offered us was the basic deal that every band got on Atlantic Records. The same deal Ray Charles and everybody got. Amit was I a did. straightforward I guy. did. I did. I mean, the, everybody got the same deal at the beginning. You got the deal or you didn't get the deal in terms of points. And McIntyre said, you know, these guys are not like that. They are special. They are the next band that's going to be a colossal band and you can't you, you got to pay him you got to give him more points and and Ahmed said you know really do I have to do that I don't have to do that I'll just bury the record that is one of the worst I mean because I love McIntyre coming to the rescue in that heavy period of the 80s yeah you're telling me he you were with him or no yeah I wasn't in the meeting but I was with him on the trip um and Dude, I, was, I would I, I would venture to say that if that thank God Joel Siegel didn't receive a life in prison for choking McIntyre to death, I would have right. I would have killed that guy. Yeah, I can't well, believe. Got, Go ahead. Got to remember that he was he was much more sophisticated than us. He was a lot older. I mean, he knew the ropes. He was the manager of the Grateful Dead for Christ's sake. We hey, were playing I, with listen, that. I've seen interviews with him. He is a stone. G listen, the guys in the band loved him because he was super high intellectual. But what the hell is he doing? First of all, what is the problem? with just taking the points that you were getting and then building on that momentum and get doing another album. Yeah, exactly. What the heck? So, right. So that's what happened. And, and after, and he, he then, you know, this, I do remember cause I was there. I mean, he, he was really, I didn't know Ahmet well. I mean, I, you know, obviously I'd only met him a few times. Um, at one point, David told me that when 
when the record was nearing completion and Amit was meeting with David and David was telling him how incredible it was. Amit took off his toupee and threw it across the room and said, thank you, David, for, you know, getting us this phenomenal band. These kids are unbelievable. So I think what happened was Amit was a real fan and McIntyre really, really put him in a sour place. Because Amit didn't oh. fuck around with with points and money. You took the deal, you know. I mean, what the heck? Who, I, I mean, what was it? It wasn't necessarily the. It wasn't great. It wasn't bad. I mean, it was fine. It was just the normal right. deal. Right. Exactly. So McIntyre had such a big head, and I remember him storming around the office with Amit, saying, "They will not. You know, they're the next coming. Blah. They will not. You know. So, so anyhow, that's the story, and that's what happened. So, tell me Thankfully, a little bit about. I want to. This is really important because, like I said, one of the L's on my show is is life, overcoming adversity, and I don't think this is a better place. This is the perfect place to ask you. Not everybody else in the band. Obviously, you're you had a very talented cat, but can you talk about how you overcame that? I. I understand it's the music racket, okay? But you're dealing with Ahmed Erdogan at that time, who it was a glide path towards at least a, another D, another record. You could have built the momentum. And here it is, this guy who was thrust upon you by a couple of saints, Barncard and Crosby, blows up the whole thing. How yeah. did you deal with that adversity? How did it make you a stronger person? Uh, because this wasn't the last – I mean, R.J. Fox came back strong with Carl Toss. Right, right. I mean, uh, what happened was, it, it was after that, sometime after that, that the band actually broke up for a number of reasons, but the primary one being the one I just described. We were all so gutted. We, we were gutted. I mean, everybody was just completely gutted. And um, so, you know, we all kind of went our separate ways. And um, I was in a bad hole at that point. I mean, the only reason that we were all still in the in, on the West Coast um Richard was fortunate enough to, I don't want to go into a long story, but there was another singer in RJ Fox, Valerie really? Carter. The oh, yeah. Famous, oh, you know Valerie I, Carter. I, I, how did that, how did she even get hit to you guys? Well, after Sherry kind of left the band, after the whole record thing blew up, Richard ended up meeting Valerie at a coffee house in North Beach and invited her to come out to our house in Stinson Beach and sing with us. So we, of course, were at the really at the bottom of the barrel at that time. Marty had left to go on and produce um, uh, 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 Dan Fogelberg. Marty Lewis became Dan Fogelberg's producer. But anyhow, we, so he'd gone on to do that. And the rest of us were just chilling in Stinson Beach. And uh, Richard brought Valerie Carter out and we started singing together. And it was it was pretty fucking good. So when once Barncard heard about that, he got us in the studio. We made demos and started doing stuff but to characterize that time for you jake um everybody was really at the bottom you know it was was really was really at the bottom i mean i think for richard it was easier because what happened was he and valerie after the, we we were singing for a while the three of us but then he and valerie went off with john lind and formed a band called howdy moon and they had a couple of hits and so wow. i think it was easier for richard um Although then Valerie dumped them and went off on her own. I think it was easier for Marty because he discovered um, Vogelberg or Vogelberg discovered him. And of course, that became a monster relationship for Marty. Um, but for the rest of us, it was pretty bad. And I think Barncard gets the credit for rescuing me. I'm, I'll never forget that he called me up one day and said, um, I got a studio in my house in Toledo. It's not much, but 
you need to come here and start recording your new song. So I said, okay, you know, I'll do that. So I went to his house and recorded actually a whole album's worth of songs there in his home in Sausalito. And he helped me keep the faith when I really didn't have any uh, over what had happened. I went through a really, really bad time, you know, after the RJ Fox breakup, especially having been there, you know, when it happened and all that stuff. It was really... I, I just, this is, uh, so there was no, after that, it wasn't like, even though I, David even though Ahmed threw the toupee and was freaking out about you guys and had the relationship with David, it, it was, there was no even consideration of saying he was just going to bury that, all those tunes, he was just going to put that in the lockbox and it was never to be seen again. Well, eventually of course it did come out much later, but yeah, that's, that's what happened then. And you can tell how, again, I was just a bystander. So you can tell how bad it got between Ahmed and McIntyre, you know, Ahmed was, a, I mean, like, you know, I'm the, the kind of guy, now that I look back on it and think about him, because I saw him, you know, at other points, I mean, he was a very, you know, he was the guy he was, and um, this is a funny story. Many years later, I was staying at the Peninsula Hotel in Beverly Hills, uh, actually recording in L.A. at the time, wow. and um, so <laughs> I... I I don't know what I was doing. I get out of my car, whatever limo pulls up. I'm at the hotel. I'm a guest too. And out of the limo comes Amon Erdogan. You know, walking right toward me. I hadn't seen him in, you know, so many years. And of course I, I had no idea he would even remember me. He said, Oh yeah, I remember you. You're that kid in that great band. And it all got fucked up. <laughs> it, oh my God. Dude. He said, he said too bad. He said too bad. I love that band. That was a great band. Well, I'm just, well. this is so much, so even during, I mean, because being at the bottom of the pit is sometimes the best place to be because that's where realism is actually activated. Yeah. I've talked to guys who are just, I don't want to get into it, but just all these incredible jazz musicians that <clears throat> coming back from health problems or completely having brain aneurysms, learning, not forgetting how to play the guitar, relearning it, all that stuff. You were still, would you say one of your saving graces, because Barncard called you, you had a whole bag of new tunes. So you were still writing. You were still creating during the darkness time. Yeah, I was. And I'll tell you something interesting. Um, I've since then, between then and now, I've made nine albums. I've sold a lot of records. I've played with several other bands, including now my own band, The Pocket Band, and just released my, my latest album, Pink Hotel. And we're doing really well. And all of that perseverance came from that experience. I really felt like I had something to say and that I was going to continue even without the commercial success that I would have had with RJ Fox. And even though I've never attained that, I've kept playing, I've kept grooving. And, you know, I'm finally now at a point where I have an audience. I have a whole audience. I mean, I have a big audience on Facebook. People download my tunes. It's, it's really, it's really kind of good for the soul that I was able to keep going, even though we had this really difficult experience. Can you talk to people out there that are maybe, I think, really struggling uh, in the darkness, artists, people that uh, have, I mean, this is the music racket. This is right front and center. This is one of the hardest stories I've ever heard of. Yeah. And there's been a lot of them. What is yeah, your advice sure. to people who feel like, I mean, you're not having like, you know, some journalist like, you know, uh, Ralph Gleason, which would have been heavy, or like, you know, Jake Feinberg being like, this is the best band I've ever heard, next level. 
It's David Crosby saying this. And Ahmed Erdogan. Yeah. And, on, and, and, and Ahmed. And, 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 then, and, Steve, and Steve Barncart. Steve Barncart's quote about R.J. Fox was, once I heard R.J. Fox, everything changed. Quote, unquote. So what? tell me your, tell me some, because now, now what's so interesting is that you stayed in good health, you continue to cook on the bandstand, and now yeah. today you're seeing the, the, the fruits of your labor, the I seeds am, yeah. that were planted, took a while for the tree to really grow. So right. for people that have had the rug pulled out from them in the most cruelest way, and they feel powerless, as a, put your musician, musician hat on, not your doctor hat on, what's your advice to them to, to persevere? Because you said all the stuff that's happening today is a byproduct of that verse. Uh, my advice would be a couple of things. You know, I would say to kids or, or whatever, whomever, right. I would say, you know, um, it takes two things, talent and willpower. You got to have talent. I mean, if you don't, can't produce product, if you can't do the work, then you got to give up. But if you've got talent and you have a willpower and you stick with it, you will something will eventually happen. It's very, very hard when you're in the darkness to come out, but you've got to do that. And that album, that those songs I made with Barncard, you know, back then, and then all the album, I mean, Barncard recorded every one of my albums. He recorded Oasis. He recorded Sideshow. He recorded Star. I mean, he recorded up until recently all my albums. And so, you know, helping me continue to utilize my talent and knowing that, but really it was the, I think a personal quality of perseverance and willpower, and then also, you know, having some talent, having something to say. Absolutely. Um, I dig the self-determination, but that, that is unquantifiable. You, I mean, that's not, that's not that, something you can go to school and learn about. Right. You can't, it's got nothing to do with that. I mean, and you know, it could have gone another way. I was just fortunate that yeah, I'd made some money in other areas or whatever. I could self-fund. I could, I could keep projects going. I had Stephen Barncard on my shoulder going, Joel, where are your songs? You know, in 95, I became a psychologist. And for 20 years, I wasn't in the music business. From 75 to 95, then Barncard called me up and said, you got anything? And I said, yeah, I've got a lot of songs. They're mostly <laughs> political, but they're rock and roll. He said, well, let's hear them. So he said, I'm going to put a band together for you. And we're going to go into A&M studio in Los Angeles. A&M fucking studio biggest the best studio in the world we're going to record a fucking album and that's exactly what we did that album became sideshow and the band became the pocket band i've been playing with them ever since so you that was know, 90 that was 95 that was 95 yeah, yeah your so, timing I mean, was perfect because that was the end of everything i mean by the right. late 90s it was your timing right. was well of course barn car was working at a&m member at the time so he was able to get us i mean you gotta understand i mean that was that was a hundred thousand dollar project right no, I mean, my, my uh, good friend of mine, Herb Albert, I mean, Jerry Moss, I mean, you, you can't get higher level than that. Right. I, I, I feel I need to ask you about, I understand, like, and we're going to get into that story about Winterland, but when you guys were feeling your oats before the implosion with McIntyre, were you playing uh, the end of the beginning? Were you playing the Long Branch, the New Orleans house? What venues would you, was RJ Fox playing live at? In the Bay Area, in the Bay, I can't, sometimes it's I can't just see you being in the studio. I know you guys were out playing. No, no, live. no, 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 no. We were playing live. We got we had plenty of live games. So, um, uh, gosh, I can't remember the, the name. Keystone of the Corner was not in existence. It was a jazz club at that time. No, no. We pl we played in a bar. In, we played in a club in in San Anselmo, Marin County. Yeah, it's called the that end was, of the the uh, the the um God, the I end of the beginning. The end of the beginning. Yeah, I can't remember the name of the club. 
And then we played at a club in the Santa Cruz Mountains where we opened for the Doobie Brothers. And that okay, I, know, I know the, the, the name of the place in San Anselmo was called the Lion Share. The Lion Share, exactly. Thank, Thank yes. you. Okay. No, so you we got played it. The yeah. Sorry, I forgot the name. No, and no, then, you're, come on. It's a, it was a little while ago, you know. Yeah, and then <laughs> and then we played this club in Santa Cruz Mountains where we opened for the Doobies, and that was so we we played gigs at all of these sort of local venues, kind of like the Lion's Share. There was a couple in San Francisco, in North Beach. I just can't remember the name. Richard and Valerie and I, when we first got together. That's what we did. We went out and played live, wow. and it was it was really cool because no one knew at the time that Valerie Carter was a star, you know, an absolute star with a personality that would radiate throughout the world, you know. So, so I mean, that was a pretty exciting experience as well. Plus, we were all suffering, you know, from losing Sherry from the band, you know. Um, I want to be clear. Um, would you take, would Billy or Spencer come and play with you guys or was still drummerless live? Um, I'm trying to remember. Somebody played with us at one gig. I don't remember that it was Bill or Spencer. And uh, I don't remember which one. But, but you know, we were, we were all, we were all sort of in the same circle. I mean, we were all, that's what made the implosion a little bit harder because we were all, we hung out together. We were like, you know, we, uh, you know, we, we went to one another's house and drank peyote tea and spent hours thinking about things. And, you know, I mean, we were like in the same groove. And at that point, Bill and Spencer had become a little more peer, peer like, you know, and they were great. And we were, you know, we liked them and we hung out with them and played with them. This is even after the implosion of the first record. I mean, we didn't quit. You know, we kept going. It just, just that, that really sort of threw the train of the track. Oh, absolutely. Um, let me ask you. So, yeah, we do you want to? Can we do part two? Because I we we wrapped an hour. Unless you want to keep going. Yeah, I, I can't actually because I have another meeting coming up. But I would be so grateful. I feel like there's part of the story I haven't really. Yeah, no, we're gonna get. I think we I, need I would, we need set. This has been this has been gestating for eight years now, man. Like since right, Bar I mean, Card first dropped, the, and I just ask you, but before before the next session, if you could send on top of that picture. Send me, if you remember, the tracks that R.J. Fox did at Wally Hyder's when everybody was hitting live, if you can, if you have those rough. I would love to hear the the full band hitting live. I just I, I don't even know if that stuff to me is like this is a major piece of rock history that it's been written about, but we're getting into the trenches. We're in the cracks now. So it's, yeah, it's, it's funny that you're it's funny that you're asking because a while ago, maybe in the last year or so, Barncard sent me the actual demos that we did at the audition. So they exist and I've got them. All I'm, I'm not asking for everything. I just, I'm looking for the, the tracks where the, where everybody was cooking. Boom. Red light went on. Billy and Spencer were there. If you think about it and you feel comfortable, I'm not going to share it with anybody. I just want to hear it. Yeah. I'm happy to. I can, I guess I have your email. I can send, I'll you, send you my really, email. I, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. You got my email. Yeah. I'll send you some really great images. And also, if you'd like, I can, I mean, you know, what, what you should do really is, you know, go look at a lot of video because a lot of our videos on Vimeo and lots on YouTube. So, you know, I'll send you the links to do it. Absolutely. And then I would I would be great to do part two because, I mean, what, what you don't know is that when RJ Fox reunited in 06 to do our album, I made a decision at the beginning because I what I'd been through. I said, we're going to film everything. Every rehearsal, every conversation, everything, everything's going to be on video. So we've got these videos of us actually coming back together and, and working out the new songs. It's pretty incredible. Wow. 
I also want to get into Oasis with Tossie too. I don't want to yeah. gloss over that. All right. Well, Oasis was a jazz band that was really spectacular. Cooking. So, on, all right, so, man. Yo, so we'll do it again. For you, for you, Jake, and thank. I just can't thank you. And whenever you're ready, I'll send you material. Whenever you're ready to do part two, I'm again. I'm, I I can't express my gratitude to you today as much as I feel it. Dude, bless you, brother. It was an honor for me too. So we'll do it again soon. Okay. Take care. All right. Take care, brother.